listening to the One Two Three Show with me, Noreen Mir, this Wednesday afternoon. Let's turn to the first part of today's show. Now, as you know, the Hong Kong International Literary Festival is kicking off tomorrow, from the fifth all the way through to the fifteenth of November. And as their proud broadcast partner, we will be featuring many of the great local and international creative content producers. Now, from authors to poets to filmmakers, and this afternoon, I'm really happy to be joined by local cartoonist and cultural worker Caitlin Chan. Caitlin, it's great to see you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me, Noreen. It's great to see you. We are on Facebook Live as well. Noreen Mir on RTHK Radio 3 is the page to go to. So if you want to uh, see and interact with Caitlin, feel free to do so there. So now, Caitlin, you're a queer zine maker and an artist based here in Hong Kong. And last year, you created uh, the comic zine uh, Xing uh, Bei. I tried to practice my Mandarin just now, which explores gender, queer dating and relationships. We'll talk a little bit more about that. I want to know, how did your cartoon, how did your comic journey begin? Thank you for the intro. Uh, I've always been the kind of kid who's sitting at the back, drawing in class, having trouble paying attention to math class. But I think I didn't really take it seriously because I didn't really know that people were artists as a career. Like I sort of thought, you know, it's something that exists as a daydream, but you have to grow up, suit up, you know, nine to five. Um, but I met a professional cartoonist when I was in university in my last year of uni. I was in the U.S. Uh, his name was Jason Kassenstein, and he's really supportive. He was actually one of my mentors. He was like online from my college, and he draws cartoons for a living. And I couldn't really believe it. I was like, this is your thing. Like you draw cartoons, and, and you get paid for you it. get paid for it. Someone gives you money to like make cartoons, and he's like, yeah. And then I submitted a lot of work in his class which was called writing and drawing comics and he was saying like it seems like you really like doing this and I was like yes but I'm definitely going to work in our administration because that's probably more stable or like more reliable but he was saying like I think you have a shot like I really hope that you don't stop so no matter like what job I've had in the day I feel like it's always been nice to keep making comics and connect people through that yeah growing up did you read a lot of comics did you grow up with a lot of cartoons yes I was definitely raised on a diet of like Wile E. Coyote and a lot of those like really (laughs) fun Looney Tunes cartoons and also I loved like MTV's Daria like even when I was younger I feel like I had a little bit of a cynical sense of humor. So I loved cartoons that were a little bit dark and strange, like Pinky and the Brain. And in terms of comics, I feel like a lot of people in Hong Kong grew up reading like Lo Fuzi oh, and just yeah. like oh, yes. gag Most comics like you, that, yes. 13 Dots. Like all of these are really sort of in our visual culture memory. So that was definitely some of my early foundation. And also the Powerpuff Girls and Samurai Jack, like very classic cartoons. Absolutely. Now, when did you first start? Uh, what was your first comic? What was your first cartoon? Sure. Um, I'd say like my first serious foray like outside my own like birthday cards and letters for not friends. Not math class. <laughs> yeah, not in the margins of my school books. Um, it was a cartoon I made in my last year of university for Jason's class and it was called Deep End and it was about how after the Chinese photographer Ren Hang passed away I found myself just swimming a lot as a way to kind of process this grief because I think as like an out and queer photographer he was sort of a very symbolic person for a lot of me and my friends who look up to him and his work so we found out that he passed away it was like this huge like personal loss feeling even though I hadn't actually known him following his work so many years so I made this comic just about going swimming every day and thinking about him when I was swimming and then it has this imagery of me like wearing this mask that I'm taking off and then I realized like 
there are things that you can imagine in comics that you're feeling, but you won't be able to necessarily image in any other ways. Like you would have to like edit a photo a lot to create that mood. So then that was when I think I sort of realized there are things you can say in this medium that I can't say in other mediums. Yeah, there's something really magical about comics and following the stories、uh, through comic is the dialogue, the the pain,、uh, the the pain, the the drawing.、Mm. Um, it really tells the story. You know, which one do you rely on more, the the text or the drawing? Which one comes to you first when you're creating your comics? I would say that、um, I, it's nice to use text first because I feel like it's just a little bit more immediate for me to jot down sort of notes on my phone or on like the back of a receipt or anything. But I、back、find that <laughs> when I'm drawing them in real life, it's funny because I'm so reliant on my script. But then sometimes I've you know inked the whole background and I'm like I actually don't need the words. Like let's say that I was going to write something in a panel like、um, she felt really distraught, but then she's already got her head hung low and her her back backpack strap she's clinging onto and there's like a tear on her cheek and I was. Like you already know that she's distraught. I don't. Even, I don't even need to say it.、So. Show and not tell. Yeah, it's a bit of that. Wow.、Um, let's talk a little bit more. Well, your comics have appeared in a, a number of publications, including the New Yorker, and and your Subway Crushes one was really funny. It's so. I have、um, so many subway crushes. There's so many cuties on the MTR. Well, let's talk about that. Where do you get your inspiration from? Public transport. <laughs> Actually, a lot of it is just people watching.、Yeah. I I think that Hong Kong is a really almost like sort of theatrical place. You can just walk down the street and there's like a lot of narratives unfolding around you, and it's actually kind of fun when you're alone. Sort of see like. What what are people doing and how are they touching and interacting and like it's actually so inspiring in a way that I, of course I love culture too and what people make out of real daily life but I think there's something really sort of special about just looking at what is our ordinary everyday because we often only think of documenting special days in our life but then when we try to remember different periods of our life we want to remember what the sort of the normal Tuesday or like the normal Wednesday felt like to get the real texture of you know how we were being and it's the little everyday things which make it special you don't have to focus on the special things. Things.、Um, how long do you spend people watching? Then <laughs> I think I mean most of us who live in cities, we do spend a lot of our life waiting. Like let's say rather than scrolling on the phone, you're <laughs> watching people. You're like running for the bus, and then you know that classic moment. You're just seeing your bus trail away with the exhaust fumes behind it, and you're like, well, that's 25 minutes I've got to myself now. So I could look on Facebook and see what people are posting, but then I sort of feel. I think we've gotten to this point. Like those of us who grew up on Facebook, it was a bit like playful and rowdy at first. Like you post weird things or like funny things, and now it's nothing very, shocks like, us anymore. Yeah, it's all like very pseudo professional. <laughs> so I find a little bit more rawness in like actual people on the streets. Yeah. Do you have a notebook with you where you jot down things that you see just for future ideas, or do you just remember it, you know, in the noodle or something? I have to put it in my like phone notes because I find that like I've got lots of little scraps of paper everywhere, and sometimes also when you write something and you're really Excited. The next day, you look at it and you're like, I can't read that. <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense at all. So sometimes, yeah, I find these notes like,、um, I don't know. I'd written this note down one time. I haven't really figured out this idea yet, but I was thinking about how there used to be these really big theater posters. When you walk past like live performances or in movies, there's like now showing or something. And I was thinking it would be fun if like there was a person who maybe had a really significant person from their past they haven't seen in a long time, and then one day they're walking on the street and they see like a huge billboard or a huge showing poster of them. Them, like all these years later, and I don't know. That's an image that I'm very affixed to, but I also can't explain why. Let's talk a little bit about Xingbei. 
Um, sure. You launched that, I think, last year in the, 2019. In the book fair. Yes, Daigo and Book Fair. Yeah, wow, what a year. It's been since then. this year. <laughs> yes. No book fair. What does Xingbe mean and what's your interpretation of it? Mm. Actually, we did have a 2020 International Art Book Fair this year. So oh, did we? Thank goodness for them for still organizing that. Oh, yes, it will come. Yeah. Or it happened uh, in January. Oh, did it? Shout out to Daigoon. Oh. No worries. Um, Xingbie is a term that I kind of came across when I was looking at Taiwanese queer history. Um, many of us have maybe heard the term Tongzhi, which is translating to comrade, and it basically means uh, it's a term that queer people have appropriated to mean um, other people in the queer community. Um, but I found Xingbie interesting because it literally translates to gender and difference, and it's usually written with a slash in between it. And the way that it's used to gesture or describe things is just really anything that's sort of a divergent or non-normative idea of gender or sexuality. And when thinking about like my friends, my queer community, that's a phrase that I feel is a little bit more specific and descriptive because it's a thing that sort of gestures at the fact that we're really trying to find new ways to imagine ourselves or new ways to imagine relationships than what we've been told. So bie, meaning different, I feel is a kind of expansive and open word for that. Yeah. And yeah. You mentioned just now it's a Taiwanese book. Do we get a lot of, you know, books on queer politics in Hong Kong? Um, I'd say the there's a lot of great uh, queer scholars in Hong Kong. Mm. I feel like most of the books I find about queerness in Hong Kong, maybe because based on my own interests, have a lot to do with visual culture. There's people writing about queer films in Hong Kong and different like queer television shows and like queer communities. And I just feel like I'm really grateful for all those scholars doing that work because a lot of the work that I think local activists do, we don't necessarily get to see reported in a lot of mainstream media. So I think that what queer scholars are doing to record this history and the struggle is really important. Yeah, like Travis Kong from HKU when he documented the the uh, the, the the incidences where men meet in toilets and then now it's been made into sok sok. So that was such a beautiful film. Really, really beautiful. Well done to Ray Young. <laughs> Yes, so amazing. Yes, well done to him. So tell us about Xingbei then. What is it about? Uh, I guess I was thinking a lot about, um, shout out to our fellow guest friend, Sophia Sheck. You know, her and I have talked about how a lot of queer stories that get told are um, a little bit tragic or they, they hew to the storyline of um, the internally repressed, um, feeling very lost person, which is, of course, Why how all that? of us feel sometimes. I think it because it plays into the narrative that uh, anyone who's marginalized life is just about their struggle when it's like, we have like lots of dimensions of being and, and, and ways of desiring and wanting things. And I was thinking, what if I just wanted to tell a queer story that's about the small the small moments in our lives, whether it's like a, a little comment at a family reunion or it's something that two people who are living together say to each other before they go to sleep. It's like these are the sort of small traces of our lives that make us feel like we've existed or that we exist. And they're not necessarily grand or big, but I just thought it'd be nice to kind of have a ambiguous meet cute story. So that's kind of why I like the two protagonists of that zine is that they're not like it's never said that they're like two girlfriends or anything it's sort of like their gender and their relationship is sort of undefined because it might sort of be in flux but what we know is that there's something very tender there where no matter how much like society or their sort of colleagues make fun of them they have each other at the end of the day yeah i just i just learned what the what the phrase meet cute meant and i had to google it <laughs> For through you because I knew like your zine was sort of had, had the when you meet make, a cutie yeah exactly that's simple so I'm seeing like there's a bit of a, a, a an interest in zines tell us a little bit more about the appeal about zines 
I find that uh, zines are sort of a way to sort of short circuit the process of traditional publishing. So a lot of us uh, have ideas and we have writing and we have drawing, but many of us might think that our artwork is not necessarily up to what we believe is this imagined standard of what uh, gatekeepers would say is art that's worthy of printing onto like precious paper. Um, but the thing about zines is that, you know, they began in a lot of punk and DIY and anti-racism circles. Like they're all about forming a kind of solidarity community and immediacy and urgency. So what I like about zines is that I didn't even like think I could make my own. It was actually another previous guest, Beatrix Pang, who sort of encouraged me. Uh, she's a publisher and she runs Small Tune Press. And when I met her, she was asking me like, have you thought about making a zine? And I was, I was really shocked at first. I was like, oh, not me. Like, I don't have anything to say. I don't have any ideas. And she said, well, like, my printer is available. So she actually opened up that resource to me. And when I printed the zine, something about just seeing the sheets of paper come out of the tray makes you feel like, that's my idea. And now it's on a paper. And there's something that's kind of special about that. Because I usually associate printing with, like, documents or, like, forms <laughs> and stuff, right? So it feels cool. exciting. It's like, reclaim the form, you know, like, reclaim the paper. So it's something that's about aiding your ideas or, like, something you want to put into the world. Yeah, and what has the reaction been so far when people, when your friends and your family see that you've produced on Zine? <laughs> I feel like um, it was a lot of like, oh, that's cute at first. Like, well done, okay. Like, it was nice, but maybe, maybe like don't know a little what a strange. Is. For sure, yeah. I feel like it was. Funnily enough, I think a lot of other people, like a lot of other creators of Asian descent have told me this. It's sort of when a wider community that doesn't know you reflects your work back to you, then your family starts being like, oh, okay, oh. like people read it or <laughs> people listen to it. Comes yeah. in. <laughs> it's a, it's a sort of a, a way to feel a little bit more confident in your work or just knowing that there are people who don't know me at all, but connect to the stories I'm telling. It makes me feel a little bit more confident. Yeah. Caitlin, um, with your process of drawing, do you draw with pencils or do you draw digitally? Sorry if I'm asking a really sort of dumb question. Not, I sometimes, not dumb at all. Sometimes I wonder, you know, if, if you are a, a cartoonist, do you start with, you know, like, like what we do when we write instead of typing, do you do it digitally? Yes, I uh, usually write my scripts out on my phone because I make so many revisions if I was going to write it, the paper would like tear through. But I find that when I'm drawing, I really like to start with pencil. I think because the way that the pencil reacts when it's in your hand, there's an immediacy to the pressure versus when I use tablets, I find I can't always control how it looks. And I learned from this great comic artist, Bianca Shunis, who said, if you do all your pencil sketches really light and loose, you won't worry about them so much. And that's how you arrive at the composition you'd like because you're not so fixated on the final outcome. Because what's a pencil stroke? just a little stroke here and a stroke there and that's how you sort of develop the form because I find sometimes when we any of us you know face with a blank paper or yes. the blank recording document you're just like eek it's like kind of scary daunting. Exactly. yeah so pencil's a way to make it feel a little bit more relaxed and maybe I'll ink it digitally but sometimes I ink it with real ink yeah. oh wow with real ink as well and then afterwards you scan it in yeah back to the digital <laughs> so it's, it feels kind of ironic but you know the originals are all in my precious bedroom drawer so <laughs> maybe one day someone will want to see them is there a sort of demand for for doing it more digitally these days? I mean, because you have to revise the scripts or re revise the drawings. Are people sort of asking you for a soft copy to begin with? I do find that um, most of the people I work with have been very nice about letting me choose the medium. But then, yeah, when we're going through professional rounds of revision, I definitely usually berate myself if I've gone analog and I've been like, it's your fault for making a watercolor drawing for this commission. <laughs> so I find that I've been hewing a little bit more to digital for professional works. And for my personal ones, I feel okay making them messy and analog style. Yeah, well, for, for our listeners, um, we will be able to see Caitlin uh, in the in Tycoon JC Coop on the 15th of November. She'll be doing a talk called zines memes and books in the digital age can you tell us a little bit more about what it might be about without giving it too much away 
for sure. Um, there's this wonderful independent publisher and story curator called Tiffany Huang of Spill Stories. And she's actually the person who's also on this panel and also invited me to participate because she uses her Instagram platform with Spill Stories to sort of share uh, people's storytelling and narratives in like an organic digital way, moving with the time, social media. And she noticed that I've been putting out print zines while also publishing comics online. So she was sort of saying like, there's a bit of a duality there. And I think that it's really nice that the Hong Kong Literary Festival is actually open to other kinds of literature outside the traditional canon of bookstores and printed books. There's also other ways like uh, her recent anthology for Spill Stories, Black in Asia, was disseminated a lot on ebook and Kindle. And that's also how I got my copy. So I feel like the panel's a little bit how a little bit about how is literature sort of transforming and changing and adapting to the conditions of social media and how do people's ideas and narratives still get preserved in that context. Yeah, finally, Caitlin. Now, I know a lot of your work is being published uh, in a lot of different global literatures like the New York Times. How did that journey begin? Um, did you did you have some work to submit to them or how did that journey start? I should probably note for facts, it's only The New Yorker. I haven't been published in The New York Times. Oh, sorry, New Yorker, but, beg your pardon, yes. Yes, with that magazine, um, Jason's actually a contributor, one of my mentors, and I didn't know if he like introduced me to anyone because out of the blue, I got a message from one of their editors in the summer. And I remember I was just in terms of my personal life. I was on like my first holiday of 2019 in June. Like I'd gone to Italy and I was like, I'm on a holiday. And then I got an email from The New Yorker Very and I was like, love. just kidding. Yeah. So I was like freaking out about having something to submit. But then I guess, um, I've done not like stand-up comedy but a little bit of like fun like talking sets in Hong Kong and I had some kind of jokes written on my iPhone so when I was thinking about things to pitch I was pitching the subway crushes at that point so then that was sort of how the ball got rolling and then developing the comic uh, in collaboration with the editor but when she wrote to me she was like very kind and very open and it made me think wow I had this idea that everyone who worked in like the literary establishment was like very highbrow and self-serious but she was her name's Emma she's incredibly warm and when she wrote to me I was thinking like I'm just like some random person but then it made me realize like maybe things are more possible than we think like I remember I was um, with my partner's friend that night after I found out about the New Yorker and then he had like some framed New Yorker prints on his wall and he said this thing where he was like you New Yorker <laughs> and then I was like I have to get into this magazine like I have <laughs> to prove this random guy wrong and then what I did it felt really good yeah and so your inspiration is people uh, crushes on the train crushes on the MTR or little everyday moments I've made a comic also about um, how many times people call me by the wrong name not because they think I'm oh actually it's because they think I'm someone else it's not because they're like Caitlin Catherine it's really like Caitlin Audrey or something it's just entirely different because let's say I have a similar haircut to someone who's like my colleague and then just all these moments of mistaken identity were also kind of funny and these sort of weird everyday awkward or strange things I want someone to capture them because I feel like it happens to more of us than we think absolutely it's totally relatable I really recommend people to go to your website and follow you on IG as well um, remind us once again how our listeners can follow you and your work then Caitlin sure um, I'm on Instagram with the handle Caitlin M Chan and my website is caitlinchan.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed chatting with you. I've been looking forward all day to speak to you. And for our listeners, um, you can also support uh, Caitlin's event at the Literary Festival uh, by buying your tickets. And you can uh, see her on the 15th of November. And her event is Zines, Memes and Books in the Digital Age. And it's from 12.30 to 2 o'clock in the JC Cube in Tycoon. Many thanks once again for your time, Caitlin, and hope to see you again next time. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Noreen.